There is a future beyond shell. It is necessary, overdue, and inevitable. In its place, we are building a clean, fair, and affordable energy democracy. Get ready. Oil and gas major shell has contributed significantly to the climate crisis. It has long impeded a just transition away from fossil fuels. But what are the pathways to a future beyond shell? If we are serious about putting a stop to the polluting colonial capitalist company, we need to take a good look at the options. Bankrupting, carbon pricing, suing, nationalizing. What can we achieve with these strategies? Welcome to the Future Beyond Shell podcast, in which we explore potential pathways to responsibly dismantle Shell as we know it. We are your hosts, Archina Ramanujan and Marisol Reindl. In times of economic crisis, bankruptcy has been a frequent fate for struggling corporations. Given the troubled state of the fossil fuel sector, almost 250 oil and gas companies could file for bankruptcy protection in the U.S. by the end of 2021. This is more than the previous five years combined. But what does filing for bankruptcy actually mean for a corporation? What patterns can we observe from fossil fuel companies that have declared bankruptcy in the past? What are key elements to consider in a restructuring process that might result from bankruptcy, like spin-offs or asset sales? And how do these issues stack up when we are looking at bankruptcy as a way to wind down the fossil fuel industry? Today, we have the pleasure of welcoming Joshua Macy, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Chicago Law School. He is a specialist in environmental energy law, as well as in bankruptcy and financial regulation. So welcome, Joshua. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you're doing? Yeah, so I, I study primarily energy law, climate and bankruptcy law. Um, and so I've uh, written about energy markets and how they affect uh, global emissions and also about fossil fuel bankruptcies, focusing mostly on the coal industry, but increasingly on the oil and gas industry. Yeah, also from my side, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, yeah, you started already uh, a little bit uh, to talk a little bit about your work. Uh, what we are particularly interested in, maybe to start off, if you could uh, tell us a little bit more about past bankruptcies in the fossil fuel sector that you've studied. So what kinds of companies uh, did this concern and what were the conditions under which they were filing for bankruptcy? So one of my first papers was about um the slate of coal mining bankruptcies that swept the United States between 2015 and 2017. Um, and uh, a co-author and I found a few things, but we were especially interested in looking at how bankruptcy or, or how companies used bankruptcy or restructured before bankruptcy such that they could uh, try to get out of environmental and labor obligations. And um, uh, so it, with, with the U.S. Bankruptcy Code, um, there's a, a list of priorities and payments should go out under that list of priorities and environmental and labor obligations typically do not receive first priority, but they're not 
they're also not at the bottom of the pile. And yet what we found over and over again was that environmental and labor was getting a much lower payout than you would have expected if you'd just gone down this list of priorities. Um, and the reason for that is that coal mining companies, instead of simply paying out uh, the money that they had to the various stakeholders, would undergo strategic restructurings so that they could separate their um, the assets that they felt still were, were worth something from the, the liabilities associated with, uh, with coal mines that were no longer productive. So to give an example, um, a company called Peabody uh, in 2007 actually spun off uh, quite a few of what seemed to be unproductive mines and it in 2007, and it put 97% of a certain type of labor obligation in associated with those mines, so pension obligations and retirement obligations, along with uh, a couple hundred million in cleanup obligations. And the sort of predictable outcome, it took about 10 to 12 years, was that labor and cleanup obligations received pennies on the dollars and other creditors uh, came out much better, even though you would have expected had Peabody simply followed the, the hierarchies of the bankruptcy code to pay the labor and the environmental obligations uh, more than at least some of the creditors. And, and you see this strategy um, over and over again with, with coal mining companies. And increasingly, it, it's been happening with oil and gas, where um, the, the circumstances are slightly different um, for a variety of reasons, but the idea that you uh, essentially put environmental and labor obligations into either a subsidiary or an affiliate and divest yourself from that or spin it off, and then that company uh, files for bankruptcy, has, um, or sometimes it doesn't even need to file for bankruptcy, it can just stop operating and because it has no assets, it, it doesn't do anything, it becomes much more difficult to, uh, to, to collect on those obligations. Now there are, in theory, in, in every bankruptcy jurisdiction in the country, there should be a mechanism for stopping this. It's called fraudulent conveyance or fraudulent transfer law, um, which, when, which in theory is a, entitles uh, people who are harmed. Basically, you're not, the, the, the theory underlying fraudulent conveyance law is that if you have two creditors, one is your grandmother and one is the bank, you have $100, you owe each of them $100, presumably both should get paid $50. And if you give your grandmother $100, uh, we, th we might think that this, that you're, uh, you know, three weeks before filing for bankruptcy, we might think you're trying to favor one creditor over another. And you're supposed to be able to claw the money back from your grandmother um, and, and so that you pay each $50. This looks a lot like what's going on in the fossil fuel industry, that fossil fuel companies are paying uh, shareholders and financial creditors much, much more than they're paying other interests. And, and the ones I, I care most about are, are environmental and labor interests. Um, and so in theory, those interests, whether through the government or uh, uh, environmental plaintiffs or, or labor, uh, if sort of former employees of these companies should be able to sue the people who received a higher payout and recover what they are owed. Um, that 
has not happened for a couple of reasons. One is that there's fraudulent conveyance law, it doesn't really provide deterrence. So uh, a company, at the best case scenario, the environmental and labor gets what it's owed, but that doesn't deter a company from doing this anyway. At worst, they have to, to pay a little bit of money back, whereas I, I think there should be punitive damages. But more importantly, there's a statute of limitations on fraudulent conveyance law, and it's typically four years. So if four years pass and uh, the no suit is brought, then you lose your right to, to sue under fraudulent conveyance law. Um, and so in some of the more egregious instances of these sort of spinoffs I've been talking about, um, companies would actually support the company that they spun off so that it would not file for bankruptcy for four years. And just after that four years uh, uh, expires, the company would liquidate and then there would be no ability to sue. Um, and yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think it's really interesting what you already uh, mentioned about sort of the risks of filing bankruptcy. And I think we will delve into that a little bit more in just a second. Maybe before going there, I was wondering, uh, so what you, the process that you've uh, described now, I think they're quite US specific. And considering that Shell, uh, our main target of our podcast is a multinational uh, corporation, we were wondering how uh, the process of filing bankruptcy maybe looks like in, in different countries and other countries and whether you can speak a, a little bit to that. Yeah, so European bankruptcy law is very complicated. Um, but as a and and the reason is that each member state has a separate bankruptcy law, and those differences can be pretty significant. Um, but the way and, and Shell is especially complicated because it has substantial assets across the world. Um, but the way that uh, a bankruptcy involving Shell would play out is that in Europe, there would be a center of main interest. Uh, this, uh, the, 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 the company and its stakeholders would have to identify the jurisdiction in which Shell has its primary place of interest or operations, which would probably be the Netherlands. And that, uh, a court in the Netherlands would deal with most of the issues involving the bankruptcy, but there may be sort of side proceedings in other countries where the company has um, uh, significant assets. And each jurisdiction or venue in which a bankruptcy is occurring would have to, would apply the law relevant to uh, whatever credit agreement or business in that jurisdiction which can get extremely complicated and itself be, um, it may be an additional reason why it would be preferable to have a sort of government intervention that would guide the resolution of the company because um, it's very hard to think that a bankruptcy court in the Netherlands or a court in the Netherlands, it might not be a bankruptcy court, would have the expertise to think about you know, 20 to 30 different insolvency or resolution regimes while simultaneously allowing um, certain parts of the bankruptcy to happen 
in other countries. Um, now, it may be that there's a voluntary agreement to have it all done in the Netherlands, but the two major issues are that there would be different types of law applied to different parts of the shell company, and there may be disputes about whether um, to resolve certain parts of the company in the Netherlands or in a different country, um, and that that itself can can add significant complications to a resolution of a company like Shell. So what you're saying is with the with the with the preference for a government res, uh, guided resolution for for a company like Shell that is a multinational that one one government should assume the responsibility as opposed to work because it's too complicated to deal to collaborate across countries basically so two so there's the the question about how to resolve it outside of bankruptcy or to us it would be better for one jurisdiction to deal with any potential bankruptcy but even within bankruptcy there are i think additional issues that you have um uh Parts of Shell would be subject to Nigerian insolvency law, parts to Dutch insolvency law, parts uh, to insolvency law within the United States. And so I, I agree also as an administrative matter that um, it would be even better for a single country to manage it, but I suspect that there would be, even ignoring bankruptcy issues, um, countries might not, not look at that too kindly if their own interests are being uh, managed by uh, a, a different country, um, but but as a bankruptcy matter, it it could be really disastrous and problematic to have uh, you know multiple courts resolving parts of shell and individual courts faced with the responsibility of teaching themselves different insolvency laws uh, that can look very different for for different parts of shell. And just for our listeners, resolving a company means basically uh, deciding what will happen once it's declared for bankruptcy. So resolving a company does not mean the company goes away or its operations goes away. It can mean a few things. It, it can mean the company reorganizes, so it just restructures its debt. Um, and in fact, the purpose of bankruptcy is often understood not to help make sure that companies uh sort of stop operating, but to ensure that they continue to operate. Um, and with the fossil fuel industry, I think that's that that general purpose is is problematic because um, it, 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 you know, there are a lot of situations in which it would be much better for to have a guided resolution where resolution means keeping oil and gas and coal in the ground. Um, but so the, the sort of three things um, resolution means is one, the company for all intents and purposes stays the same, but it reorganizes with a different capital structure and balance sheet and gets rid of some burdensome debt. Thing two, um, the company's operations continue, but it doesn't really, it looks very different. So these are usually thought of as bankruptcy sales. Um, and so, for example, if Shell is ordered to uh, even to liquidate by a, a court in the Netherlands, it's possible that that would simply result in a bunch of asset sales like the one that occurred this week to ConocoPhillips, um, in which Shell's shareholders make a great deal of money and all that's happening is 
uh, oil and gas assets that were being operated by Shell are now being operated by a different com uh, company. And so the assets are still being used to drill oil and gas. Um, and the third outcome is that the, the court or the stakeholders recognize that, uh, so, so sorry, the second outcome is one in which the company is sold for parts, but those parts continue to operate. So the company no longer really exists, but its operations for all intents and purposes do. And the third outcome is that the company effectively goes away and it and the things it was doing are no longer happening. Um, so that might be a liquidation in which there are no buyers of the assets. And so when I think about um, uh, how a bankruptcy should result in a dramatic, should facilitate a dramatic reduction in fossil fuels, I think that it would be uh, helpful to try to ensure not only that the corporate entity itself uh, goes away, but also that whatever assets it was operating uh, to, to, to bring hydrocarbons out into the world are no longer doing that. Right. So we put a definitive end to production. And I, I want to shift gears a little bit to focus a little bit more on Shell. And we're wondering how likely is bankruptcy for Shell? Uh, do you think, you know, can, can we just wait for it to happen or does it necessi necessitate some action by government or other actors for it to occur? I think, um, I think bankruptcy is unlikely in the absence of government action and also probably uh, undesirable um, because if Shell it, it Shell right now has a lot of assets that are worth a great deal of money. And so faced with a legal obligation to become uh, carbon neutral by uh, in the relatively near future, Shell is just, if that obligation is enforced, Shell's going to sell those assets for a great deal of money. Um, and it may also spin off uh, what would likely be assets that involve significant cleanup obligations. And so that, that is the sort of second category I was describing in which Shell, uh, in this case, outside of bankruptcy, just gives assets that continue to produce fossil fuels to other companies. It makes billions of dollars from doing so, um, but the resolution is not a net reduction in, in emissions. Um, in the event that every jurisdiction starts taking their uh, Paris commitment seriously, then I think a bankruptcy is more likely. But even then, I think it's undesirable because the bankruptcy is unlikely to provide a mechanism for getting Shell to clean up uh, its, its environmental obligations, uh, but rather will be a forum or a venue in which to pay uh, financial creditors and financial shareholders. And when sort of thinking about whether we want to make it more expensive for uh, capital markets to, to lend or, or provide capital in some other form to fossil fuel companies, I think uh, having the worst outcome be that those investors uh, have a way of getting paid before all other interests um, makes it less likely that they, they're not as likely to sort of 
be deterred from investing in fossil fuels as they would be if uh, there was a, a sort of global or multi-jurisdictional way to resolve the company in which it was very clear that whatever value was left would go towards the company's workers and environmental interests. And so I think, um, uh, I think if Shell has noticed that it, it, it is going to have to change its operations, it, it has the ability to sell its assets, which, which has the problematic outcome of just allowing Shell to uh, sell oil and gas assets to companies that will continue uh, producing oil and gas. Whereas um, I think a more ambitious approach would be to have a way of telling Shell that it can't, if it's going to sell its assets, it, those, it, that, that can't result in additional uh, oil and gas drilling, which is would be likely to block um, sort of recent recent sales Shell has done, uh, which, and, and so if you look at the ConocoPhillips example, um, I believe Shell announced that it um, that it would provide a dividend to shareholders of seven billion dollars, and it would reuse another two billion to restructure its balance sheet, which looks like it means payback creditors. So here, you a have a an asset sale that doesn't stop the production of oil and gas, and b you the proceeds of that sale are going to be used to pay off Shell's financial interests, but not its environmental and labor interests. And so in the event that uh, Shell has to, uh, that the, its environmental obligations become more serious or that, that its, its regulators become uh, more exacting about determining how Shell should resolve itself, um, those $9 billion in, in, in that it got from the ConocoPhillips deal uh, will already have gone to uh, stakeholders who are not its employees and not uh, committed to cleaning up its environmental obligations. So basically, we need some form of legislation or policymaking that ensures that these um, that this can't happen, that you can't uh, disperse these funds or spin off subsidiaries. Um, but um, I want so. But in your eyes, Shell is not too big to fail. It's well. It's the too big to fail can mean a lot of different things. Um, and uh, so you know, too big to fail can mean would lead to a global economic collapse. I don't think that's the case with Shell. Too big to fail can also mean um, the failure of a company would impose substantial costs on certain communities. And that that gives regulators an incentive to uh, uh, prolong that sort of corporation's activities, even if they impose a net cost on society. And so there are sort of examples from uh, not companies that are smaller than Shell, but that have uh, reorganized where, so for example, some coal companies in Wyoming um, owed about $30 million in taxes to the state of Wyoming. And in my opinion, one of the reasons Wyoming was so eager to accommodate uh, the reorganization of coal companies that have laid off thousands of workers and, and are at risk of abandoning coal mines and imposing tremendous costs on communities is that they fund their schools through the tax royalties coal mines provide. Similarly, um, an oil and gas company in Pennsylvania, which is not, which is not nearly as big as Shell, um, 
was found to have so many cleanup obligations that if it defaulted on them, um, it would, the, the state of Pennsylvania, you know, it would impose hundreds of millions of dollars in cleanup obligations on the state of Pennsylvania. There's no way the company can pay all of these obligations, but because Pennsylvania didn't want to have to impose those costs onto tax holders immediately, taxpayers immediately, it reached a deal where the company would clean up five to 10, uh, would close five to 10 wellheads a year, which is, it, it would take hundreds of years for it to perform all the cleanup. It has a legal obligation to retire, but that too seems like a type of too big to fail in which the failure of the company would impose such substantial costs on the regulator that they have an incentive not to do that. And I think one of the reasons the lack of, uh, of, of government help with Shell is problematic is that I do think there are situations like that where Shell does have cleanup obligations. If we find it can't immediately pay for them, it would impose real costs on local communities. It might not perform all of the cleanup obligations and it would be easier um, to just to, to have a way of thinking about what, what money can we get out of Shell and how can it best be used to, to um, minimize the environmental impacts of, it, of, of, a, of a restructuring while simultaneously uh, providing whatever government funds are needed to sort of ensure that that liquidation actually occurs um, and not, and that sort of local regulators or, or, or policymakers that would object don't try to make sure that Shell continues to operate to avoid the what could be pretty dramatic costs imposed by a, a bankruptcy if there's no way of, of providing funds for cleanup and for adversely affected communities. So we were curious about you know, important lessons that we can take from past examples of bankruptcy, but I think you've uh, enumerated quite a few already, namely, um, you know, legislation or policy to prevent these spinoffs. And, you know, there may be situations in which these companies have so much debt or, or sorry, so many uh, cleanup obligations that some restructuring needs to happen. But are there um, are there any other ex other lessons that we should take forward from these past examples that you have studied? And maybe with yeah. a view, maybe with a view to drawbacks and limitations, and maybe positive things. So, one lesson that I think was really surprising to me um, was that there was this idea that insurance could solve everything with um, legacy environmental obligations. That if you have companies uh, take out insurance such that in the event that the company is unable to honor its cleanup obligations, the insurance company provides funds to do so, that would be a solution to all of uh, the problems with uh, retiring legacy fossil fuel assets. The problem with that approach is that if, if everyone got in a car crash tomorrow, every insurance company would go bankrupt. And with some fossil fuel industries, the insurance industry seems to be aware that there's a high likelihood that they will have to basically provide and you know honor the insurance obligation of every single claimant. And that's not a sustainable business model. And what's going on in a few, in parts of the coal industry, for example, is that all good, by which I mean well-capitalized insurance companies 
are leaving the market and the companies that remain uh, don't seem to have the capital or, or ability to finance or honor their obligations once coal mining companies uh, liquidate. And so um, I think that when it, it, we, if, we, if we think, okay, we are going to have to set aside a tremendous amount of money to do cleanup in the next five to 10 years, then I think it's much more important to try to identify the pot of assets that companies have now to do those obligations and make them set aside that money. Because if you rely on insurance, you have a moral hazard problem where insurance companies leave the market. If you um, don't do anything, the company simply uses the money that's coming into the firm now to pay off other interests. And so my own view is that if a company has $100 in assets or $100 in cash that it expects to make in the next year, in two years, it would expect to incur $80 of environmental obligations. And it also has, I don't know, $80 in obligations to uh, financial creditors and shareholders, or just financial creditors. The company is worth nothing. It's a liability, not an asset. But if it doesn't have to pay its environmental obligations now, it pays its financial creditors and there's no money left to pay those environmental creditors. And so the more individual countries are, are willing to say, you have to fully fund your cleanup obligations immediately, the more we know that um, we're unlikely to have sort of offshore oil spills because the company is not uh, 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 dealt with cleanup the way that it's supposed to. Um, and so the, 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 my sort of biggest concern is that we'll rely on insurance uh, because it seems easy, but that'll be a way of sort of pretextually complying with cleanup obligations when in fact it, it, it doesn't ensure that, that companies will actually do cleanup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe in, in relation to, to what you just said, uh, I know in your work, you, you often call bankruptcy uh, coined it sort of as a bailout for, for all companies. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. And so, so what I mean is more the investors in the company, its creditors and its shareholders, that if you, right now there is, you know, companies are able to uh, sell oil and gas and, and, and think of it as revenue positive. And what was somewhat dramatic in, in some other examples of the fossil fuel industry that, that might also be, that are probably applicable to Shell, is that if you, if you assume the company has to pay its environmental obligations, then they would have to be doing a lot less mining or drilling than they're currently doing. Um, and the reason is that you don't expect a company to operate when its liabilities are greater than its assets. Um, that means the company is no longer valuable as a going concern and, 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 and it shouldn't be making money. And so when a company has you know, hundreds of millions or billion dollars in cleanup obligations and it's paying money to its financial creditors, then I think of it as a bailout because bankruptcy or the sort of spinoffs and bankruptcy adjacent kind of behavior that, that we were talking about earlier is a mechanism for the company to get out of regulatory obligations. And we, you know, my own view is that if you are expected to uh, plug, you know, 
do cleanup, whether it's it's plug wells or do reclamation in in uh, communities where you've you've uh, essentially blown up mountains in order to access uh, hydrocarbons, then I think the premise of these regulations is that you have a requirement, a legal obligation to perform that cleanup in exchange for selling the the oil, gas, or coal that you you extract. And yet if you're not actually required to pay out those obligations, you're allowing the investors in the company, the creditors and the shareholders to receive whatever payment would be made as though those regulations don't exist because they get paid before the company sets aside money to fund its cleanup obligations. And the result of that is that those cleanup obligations don't happen and it's a bailout because um, there was a payment that the company should have made before paying its financial creditors. And it doesn't make that payment. And those payments can be enormous. Um, and so uh, creditors and shareholders have an incentive to invest in a company as though it doesn't have to actually perform cleanup. And I think that that's a bailout because there's a government obligation that essentially every party that determines the cost of doing business for a company no longer pays. And so that that entirely eliminates the incentive for the company to um, uh, follow through on its environmental obligations and its labor obligations. Since, um, you know, if you're, if you're, if you lend money to a company, you, not only do you not care if the company does cleanup, you actually don't want it to do cleanup because doing cleanup um, means that there's less money for you to get. And my own view is that there's a sort of social contract we have with these companies that they should only be permitted to operate if they perform the legal obligations that require them to do cleanup. And if the sort of set of behaviors that precede bankruptcy and occur during bankruptcy that let those investors uh, make sure that they are paid before environmental claimants, then we have effectively bailed companies out of the obligation of doing environmental cleanup. Mm. Yeah, I think that's all super interesting to hear. And I think as one of, yeah, a last question before we wrap up, I'm, I'm curious to hear or like to talk a little bit more about Nigeria as a particular case in relation to Shell. Um, of course, thinking about bankruptcy uh, or in general, like the, the transition away from fossil fuels, I think for, for countries that are largely dependent on oil production, I think that's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a huge task, a huge challenge, uh, challenge in the upcoming years. So what I was uh, curious about also when I read your work is that you described about uh, coal companies that if they don't file for bankruptcy, they spin, they do spin-offs and then that these spin-offs uh, often file for bankruptcy about uh, after a couple of years. And I think this is a similar scenario that we might be uh, seeing right now happening in Nigeria with Shell, where Shell is attempting to, or is being forced through caucus, et cetera, to reorganize its business. Uh, it has now sold off uh, shares from its Nigerian subsidiary. So 
yeah, I'm curious to hear your analysis or your view on this, like risks of bankruptcy there or like shedding some legal obligations for environmental cleanups, of course, which yeah has, has been a long issue, uh, particularly in Nigeria. No, the Nigerian case is really interesting and really um, is, is concerning. So my understanding of Nigeria, and I, I've, I've looked at this somewhat closely, but, but um, I haven't really looked into the court cases with like excruciating detail. But my understanding is that Shell has committed or is, is thought to have uh, incurred substantial environmental liability from its Nigerian oil uh, uh, business, and especially like oil mineral lease 11 and, and, and in, uh, pollution in, in, in Nigerian rivers, and that it's faced like serious court sanctions. And Shell's response was to not renew its leases in Nigeria and announce that it will leave Nigeria. And so this looks to me like the company like sort of the lack of a of a sort of structured government uh, overseen reorganization means Shell was faced with significant liability, and but if Shell leaves Nigeria, it will be much more difficult to enforce it and to to pursue Shell for previous environmental obligations. It's not impossible. There are situations, and I should have mentioned this, where um, companies have been held responsible for the liabilities incurred by their predecessors. So there was recently an offshore oil bankruptcy involving a company called Fieldwood in which BP and Exxon and Shell were all required to pay a couple hundred million dollars. But by leaving Nigeria, um, it seems that Shell has likely decided that it would be better for the company to get out of it, the Shell oil business, whether because it doesn't want to pay its environmental obligations in Nigeria or because it's consistent with its uh, announced climate goals. But once again, that, that suggests that someone else will be left uh, paying for what could be really significant and damaging uh, environmental harms. And, and that could be um, taxpayers in Nigeria, it could be the, the sort of local communities in the event that cleanup does not happen. Um, and, and that's just uh, sort of, um, I think it's not the type of behavior of, so it's not exactly what the kind of spinoff behavior I was talking about, but it looks to raise the same issues where um, a company is abandoning uh, extremely large environmental obligations. And it may have to pay some of that in the future. Um, and so I should be very clear that Shell's decision to leave may not fully absolve it of its environmental obligations, but it, it may, and it may make, it will certainly make it more difficult and sort of lead to more protracted litigation. Um, and it, 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 I have to imagine uh, one of Shell's motivations was not simply uh, because it felt that its Nigerian assets were uh, incompatible with its climate goals, but also that the environmental litigation it had been facing, I think for, for quite a few years at this point, um, was just not worth the headache and it would rather uh, exit its operations in Nigeria and, and reduce the likelihood that it would have to fully or even at all honor those obligations. Um, thanks, Joshua. We have just 
I think that was a very uh, in-depth discussion. So thanks so much. And we, we're just wondering as a sort of final question, you know, how do you envision phasing Shell out or uh, how do you envision a future beyond Shell? What, what role can bankruptcy uh, play in this? And are there other tools that you think are essential? So one possible model is actually how asbestos was treated in bankruptcy in the U.S. Um, in where we realized we had to stop building things with asbestos and also that asbestos had caused mesothelioma in, uh, you know, it had caused awful cancer in people who'd been exposed to asbestos. And so what happened was that a lot of companies started to be operated as what bankruptcy became a vehicle for turning the company into a trust to pay out to the, the people who had enormous healthcare claims against the company. And so um, my view is that uh, to the extent that Shell has assets that are going to be productive for a few years, rather than sell them to a company that is going to increase production in the Permian or in Nigeria, it would be better to, to say, we are going to make cleanup and labor obligations and you know, maybe investments in climate mitigation. Those are going to be the effective owners of the company in the future. And the way to resolve it is to say, we're going to determine, you know, we're going to reduce production to this level or eliminate it altogether. Whatever assets Shell has will be used to pay out as much as possible to the environmental and, and labor and, and whatever other obligations we think are, are really crucial and that, that would be unlikely to be paid out in a normal bankruptcy and um, have a sort of overseen understanding that the purpose of this company is not of this reorganized company is not to sell oil and gas to the highest bidder, but to balance uh, very rapid carbon reductions with um, payments to the stakeholders who really experienced harms uh, as a result of, or, or would, would experience harms as a result of, of Shell's past behavior. And so if that means additional production, that's, that's that likely incompatible with climate. But I think that there are some assets of shells that are, are valuable or that at least will be productive in, in the near future, or at the very least, Shell has a lot of cash on hand. And the goal should be to, to, to think of the company as a trust for the environmental claimants and labor, labor claimants um, such that it can't um, use tools to ensure, to, to, to restructure in a way that A, doesn't reduce the climate footprint of the assets it has now, B, doesn't result in environmental cleanup and uh, 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 just, and so only has the result of, of getting rid of the corporate entity or, you know, the corporate entity of Shell starts doing all of these great renewables, but at the same time, the assets it owned in, in 2021 are still producing oil and gas and uh, not, not necessarily performing cleanup. Thanks, Joshua. We're so glad to have had you on the podcast. You really took us through the ins and outs of bankruptcy and that corporations like fossil fuel companies, in fact, have a lot of ways they can restructure 
and avoid their labor and environmental obligations. So this is an important aspect we need to consider and tackle as we move forward. Thanks so much. To our listeners, we hope this episode got your minds working as much as ours. If you like the show, please follow and like us on your podcast platform and join us for our next episode where we will be discussing carbon pricing. Check out our show notes to learn more about fossil fuel bankruptcy and to find out more about the Future Beyond Shell, visit futurebeyondshell.org and sign up for our newsletter. See you soon.